The reading today is from Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word. Uh, let me add my welcome. Um, my name's Matt Fuller. If we've not met, it'd be lovely to do so. Let me pray. Let's pray together as we look at this. And great God and Father, we want to understand uh, the scripture here. We want to understand what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote and what it means I don't think it's very hard to understand. More than that, dare I say, we want to be convinced as he is convinced. We want to feel as he felt. That the gospel message of what the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has achieved is so very wonderful that we are eager, desperate to share it with others. Father, we can't do that on our own. Please work that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On uh, Thursday in the newspaper, um, Satnam Sangara, who's a, a journalist, and some may have read his book, Empire Land, which I think is a very good read. Um, but uh, he wrote a little article, and uh, the, the title was, Ethnic Minorities Are Keeping the Faith. And it's sort of informative and quite an amusing uh, little piece. Uh, and he overstates his case, and I'm not sure how much empirical evidence there is. But anyway, the guts of it is this. He says, here I am as a, as a, a Sikh man of Indian extraction uh, in the UK, and I look around at Christianity, and the only white Brits I can see who are Christians are the Queen and Frank Skinner. And that's it, um, who are sort of out there. And um, uh, why is that? He said, this just seems a great deal of embarrassment. I observe Emma Raducanu wearing a cross around her neck, whatever that means, um, from, from her background. I observe other sportsmen, Lewis Hamilton, Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka, Raheem Sterling, I'm quoting him now, they regularly invoke the name of the Lord 
in thanks for their success. They mentioned Jesus without anyone raising eyebrows. On winning the Young Player, the London Player of the Year award, Saka even tweeted, not down to me, it's God's work. He said, no, I just observed this as a Sikh, it's just a bit odd. Um, he said people from East Asia, Southeast Asia, you know, they're just they're completely open about it. I just, it's Frank Skinner and the Queen. Um, now, is that true? I don't know. There's no empirical evidence, and obviously he's paid to write something, and it's Wednesday night, he's got to think of something to say. I know all of that. But I wonder. He said, is it just that people are a little bit embarrassed about their Christian faith? I don't know. I don't know about us, whatever background we're from here. Are we a little bit embarrassed? And in uh, really two verses we're going to look at today, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul states very clearly, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so he'd say to you and to me, look, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be eager to share it. Like I, Paul am. Don't be ashamed. Now, if you weren't here, we began last week uh, looking at this book of Romans. Despite, despite 25 years as an apostle and church planter, Paul had not been to, uh, to the great city of uh, Rome. He's been busy planting churches in um, Eastern Europe and into Asia. So if, if you were here, we looked at the book of Acts. Antioch is the city he keeps. That's the sort of church planting center. And he keeps going out on these missionary journeys from Antioch uh, and says, I haven't been to you because I, I just love reaching new people. And you, you've heard the gospel. So, uh, you know, with many blessings upon you, but you don't need me. Uh, but, but now I want to go to Western Europe. I want to go to Spain. So can you be like my sending church? Um, can you be like Antioch was for the East? Can you, Rome, be the, the sending church for the West? That's what I'd really love to happen. And so his two main objectives in writing this letter um, to the Romans, when at length he explains what the gospel is, he said, I want to unite this church, particularly Jews and Gentiles, there's some issues there, but particularly I want to unite the church to support missionary work, to support the gospel message of Jesus Christ going out, particularly into Western Europe. Spain, and particularly mentions in chapter 15. So at some length in this letter, he says, I want to explain the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, not good advice about what you should do. The gospel, I want to explain it. So you're united behind this task of taking it to others. And we won't spend much time, but um, verses 8 to 15 really emphasize that longing, his longing to visit them and to preach to them. So verse 10, in my prayers at all times, I pray that now, now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Verse 11, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to make you strong. Verse 15, I am so eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. In other words, the gift he wants to give them to make them strong is the gospel. That's what he wants. He's very eager for them to hear again this message because well, it's what every Christian needs. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a day, a year, 50 years. We all ongoingly need the gospel. That's what keeps us going, and that's what will unite us in what matters. So Paul says, I'm very, very eager to, uh, to 
come and preach to you, the Roman church. So you'll join with me in my zeal. You'll support me as I go west. But we're going to focus really on verses 16 and 17, because they're, in many ways, I guess lots of the scholars would agree, the thesis for the whole letter. Certainly, they set up what's going to be um, explained in some length in chapters 1 to 4. You get the logic from verse 15. I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome for... For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For, because in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. So look, I'm going to look just two points, isn't that nice and straightforward? Uh, we can think in these terms about being ashamed. Why might we be ashamed of the gospel? And then a bit longer on, why was Paul not ashamed? Okay, Why might we be? and why Paul was not, and hopefully you and I can learn from that. First then, more briefly, but why, why might we be ashamed of the gospel? Now, you read the New Testament, I think it's fair to say that there's a, an objective and a subjective sense. So Jesus, uh, Mark chapter 8, will say, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. Now, that's a pretty clear thing, an objective sense. Jesus is saying, Will you, are you willing to put your hand in the air and say, I'm a Christian? And if you're not, you're not a Christian, and I won't recognize you. Are you willing? So there's an objective sense. I am following Jesus. I'm a Christian. Okay? There's that objective sense. I think that's the same sense in one, uh, 2 Timothy 1. But there's also a, a lesser level, I think, the subjective level. Look, yes, I, I would put my hand in the air. I would say I'm a Christian, but I'm a little bit embarrassed about that at times. A sort of more emotional, subjective sense to it. And I think that's the sense of it here. I'm nudged that way by verse 14 and 15. Let me explain. Paul writes, I'm a debtor, both that he's obliged because that's his job as the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. Now, what does that mean? In the culture of the time, to be Greek was to be cultured, to be sophisticated. You spoke Greek, not common language. You, you, your, 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 your cultural habits were very sophisticated if you're a Greek. If you're non-Greek, you're a pleb. So he explains what he means, both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. Let me explain. I mean to the wise and to the foolish. So um, if you wrote today, what would it be? I don't know. I, Paul would say something like, I, I'm under obligation to the, funny phrase gets used in it, to the metropolitan elites, whatever, whoever they are. Uh, I'm under obligation to the metropolitan elites of politics and finance and media, and to those that they patronize, the Tory scum voting Brexiteers. You know, that sort of, you know, I mean, it's not objective, you know, just, that's how they're viewed with condescension. Those who think they're great, and those that the great ones think are stupid. Uh, I preach to both of those. Okay, both of those sort of groups. So the most obvious example we have in Paul's life is Acts 17, when he's in Athens. 
which is the Greekest of the Greek cities, you know, the most culture, the center of Greek culture in, in many ways. And he turns up, and the Athenians say, what's this babbler saying? And he stands up, and he declares the resurrection of Jesus, and he's mocked, and they sneered. And they say, who is this ignorant babbler? Who is this barbarian? Who is this pleb, is what they say. And Paul say, yeah, I don't care about that. I'll preach to them and to the, uh, the nobodies. But for you and me here today in 21st century London, if we're a Christian, I'm sure we'd put up our hand and say, yeah, look, look yeah, I trust Jesus. I think he's the saviour of me, he's my saviour, he's my king. But, um, and there's no great suffering for standing up and doing that, but I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed, I'm a bit embarrassed. I, the, the Greeks, the metropolitan elites, they make me feel a bit stupid for being a Christian. Why might that be? I, this, may be? this may not resonate with you in the slightest. I daydreamed. Why, what, what are the times that I might be embarrassed or a little bit ashamed? And I came up with three little things. Uh, first, the first reason I might be ashamed is that Christians are a bit embarrassing sometimes. Um, some, sometimes Christians are a bit embarrassing. You know, when the divisive politician holds up a Bible uh, and says, I'm a Christian, you think, no, you're not. Or at least... The difference between your pro protestation of faith and actually your knowledge of what's in the Bible and your behavior is pretty extreme. I, get, I despair when I go and look online at sort of Christian forums, um, Christians that I know. Well, you, you know. Just the language they use, she's a witch, he's a twit, he's a fool, he's a cretin. And you think, oh, I'm just not sure that's okay. <laughs> To, to write in those terms. I'm just a bit embarrassed that that's the level of dialogue here. It's very, I find it very easy to be embarrassed by Christians. Jesus, he's wonderful. His followers, yeah, um, variable, I, I think. Now, of course, sometimes we're embarrassed by those who claim to follow Jesus. And I guess most of us will know People make claims and they're not real. Plenty of people, for example, claim to, yeah, I follow Manchester United. You know, politicians is a classic one. Do you follow a football team? Arr, I've got to be seen in touch with the common man. Arr, yes, I follow Manchester United. Ever been to any of their games? No. Can you name their players? Bobby Moore? No. Um, no, you're not really a follower, are you? I mean, you might claim to be, but you actually demonstrate in your life zero um, examples of actually following. Of course, it's sometimes sadly true for Christians. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, right. Do, do, you, do you go to church? Yes, on occasion. Do, do you love Jesus? Well, I don't know, whatever that means, does that mean. Do you ever repent? Oh, no, it doesn't sound very good. Um, why would I do that? Okay. It's, I don't think, I don't think you're a Christian. You, you seem to be missing some things. I mean, all sorts of people claim. But personally, I just think sometimes, you know, oh, I don't want to be associated with them. Christians are going to be That'd be one. Uh, secondly, let's pick up the pace. To, secondly, I think words can seem feeble. Have you ever had the experience, you're, 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 you're in a conversation, someone says, tell, tell me what you believe, and you're explaining it. 
And even as you're explaining it, there's another voice in your head which says, this is not what they want to hear. They're looking at you as if you're slightly odd. Um, this is not r scratching where their itches are. And there's just, and you, I think, a little bit of catharsis for me. I just, I often think back, there was one particular time a couple of years ago, it was a, uh, a week of talks for, at, um, at Oxford, um, university students. I remember addressing a room, several hundred people, it was on John chapter 4, and I was explaining what Jesus was saying, and just looking around this room of overwhelmingly non-Christians, thinking, why on earth would you listen to this? It's just this other little voice. Why on earth would you listen to this? This seems so feeble. Yes, there was a woman at a well, and on we go. And, and even I'm speaking, and this other voice is going, you're talking rubbish. Why would they listen to you? Um, sometimes the words just seem feeble. Maybe that's me. But I guess the third the thing, I guess, just speaking honestly, I guess it's the response. I fear the response. That's the main element, isn't it, for most of us? I fear what people will say. I think within me I fear the Greeks. I like to think of myself as a clever person. And I don't like it when people say, you're stupid for believing that. I just don't like it. I was reading, um, this was a couple of months ago, Dan Walker, some will know, a TV presenter. He presented Football Focus for like a decade. Um, but um, anyway, he stopped doing that. It was an interview about him stopping doing that. Uh, and he talked about, uh, do you know, he, do people know who he is? Anyway, presenter on BBC. And a couple of years ago, he was appointed to be the new presenter of BBC Breakfast. And it caused a massive stink. I mean, all sorts of newspaper headlines Dan Walker can't present the news. He's a Christian. He doesn't know the difference between fact and fiction. You cannot have a Christian presenting the news. Now, I think he's a very impressive bloke, nice sense of humor, good presenter. He just absorbed it all. He said there was one, one point, he got a bit annoyed. He was about six months into the job. He was, there was something about bones being discovered, dinosaur bones, and he was interviewing someone about dinosaurs. And there was a load of fuss popped up online. Dan Walker can't do, an inter can't do a segment on dinosaurs. He doesn't believe in them. He's like, I believe in dinosaurs, right? Do you have any understanding of what it is to be a Christian? Answer, no, of course not. But there's sort of, you know, he just keeps... And um, you think, I don't, want to be, I don't want to be derided. I don't want to be mocked. It's a bit more acute, of course, when it's friends that might do that. And of course, also, we live in a culture where you can get rapidly shamed online. We've gone back in time to the equivalent of the medieval stocks, and people are shamed very quickly online. It becomes brutal. You express an opinion of any time, not just any kind, not just a Christian opinion. And so lots of people just think, I'll just say nothing. And I won't comment, even though I think what's there is bonkers. Best not to say anything. So look, I mean, that's too long on that. Why might we be ashamed of the gospel? The Greeks. We're scared of the Greeks. We don't want people saying you're stupid. We don't want to be sneered at or mocked for many of us. But let's go positive. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Verses 16 and 17. Let's pick up the logic. He's eager to preach. Verse 16. For because I am not 
ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's why he's not ashamed. It's the power of God who brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. It's not a power. It is the power. There is no other way to be saved apart from this gospel message. And if you know that there is a world, which we'll go on to look at next week, which is facing destruction, and you know that there are people you care about facing destruction, and you know that you possess the way for them to be saved, you've got to push on through the humiliation. Potentially. You don't even know it's coming. Well, let me put it in these terms. Uh, this is, let me put it in stupid terms to make the point, all right? Uh, imagine, imagine you're a doctor, and uh, you find yourself on a remote island somewhere, I know, Australia. Um, um, just always, sorry, so cheap. Um, you find yourself on a really remote place uh, somewhere um, that allows flights in, and... Um, uh, sorry, I've got distracted now, haven't I? And I've distracted you. You're a doctor with excellent medical knowledge, and you're in a very remote place, and you, you happen to live amongst these people. You've gained their trust a little bit. Uh, and then one day, you see one chap who is sweating very heavily all of a sudden. And you've known this guy. It's not what he normally does. And all of a sudden, he's very weak. And you go up to him, and his heart is beating incredibly quickly and very forcibly. He becomes confused and clumsy as if he's drunk starts fitting, falls unconscious, and you as a very good doctor say, there's a blood sugar issue here. It's not subtle. It's very obvious what he needs. He needs a glucagon shot. So you reach into your bag, because you're a very good doctor and you have everything, and you pull out your big old needle, uh, and uh, you advance. Um, all, all this size, is that right? <laughs> uh, you advance towards the man, and you pull down his trousers, ready to inject into the soft region. Um, and all of a sudden, everyone else goes nuts. And they say, but he's attacking our friend with a big knife. And he's ridiculed him by pulling down his trousers and exposing his buttocks. And, and get, get the nutter with the knife away. And there you're, you know, you're, oops, sorry. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're there with your... And they, you're nuts, you're nuts, you're nuts. And they say, get away. But you sort of knock them aside, ram in the injection. And within a few minutes, the bloke sits up and goes, oh, I'm feeling much better now, thanks. But without the glucagon, just would have died. Now, that's a very stupid way of putting it. But why would you push through the hostility? Because you know you can save this bloke's life. Actually, quite simply. So even though others think you're mad, you push on through if you know it's the only hope and without it he's going to die. Of course you do. And in a far more profound and eternal sense, that's Paul's point. Humanity's lost, facing God's judgment. There is one message that can bring the power of God for salvation and Christians, you have it. We have it. And of course, it seems so feeble. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, 
He was the Christ, the promised Messiah that the Old Testament uh, had uh, spoken of, the one in the line of David. He, he died for your sins. He's risen again, can take you to be with him in heaven. He's Lord over everything. It seems so feeble. And yet he can save someone for eternity with God in paradise. It's the power of God to save. And in Paul's thinking here, salvation is not just becoming a Christian, but keep you safe until heaven. That's why you and I need the gospel all the way until we get to heaven. Dare I say that the, the gospel is the petrol pump that never runs dry, that you and I have to return to all the time to get refilled. It's the power of God for salvation. So that's why Paul's not ashamed. It's the power of God for salvation. But he goes a bit beyond that. For another explanation, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written. The righteous will live by faith. Now, briefly, the righteousness of God is a rich phrase in the book of Romans. Uh, eight times, but at crucial points. This righteousness of God. It's a number of different things. First, it's who he is. Um... Henry V was a righteous king. That, that's his character. The righteousness of God. It's who he is. He is just. Secondly, it's what he does. It's his saving power in action. He's not static. His righteousness is dynamic. Uh, he promised he'd save, and he's coming Jesus to do that. It's who he is. It's what he does. But thirdly, and most I don't know, most importantly, I'm not sure. Most commonly, certainly in these first four chapters, it's what he gives. It's what he gives. It's a status or verdict. It's the gift given to the believer. It's a naked man who's freezing and a coat is given. God gives righteousness. I don't think that's our children, don't worry. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's something to do with the marathon and excitement from the marathon. Um, but if you want to go and check and take this with you, the, um, <laughs> that'll scare them into submission. Um, it's the gift. It's the gift of God. And um, more of this as we explain chapters 1 to 4. But God's righteousness, it is the most wonderful gift that we're given because it's not... I think I used to think for years, I've failed. I'm at minus 10. Jesus is at plus 10. But he pays for me. So now I'm sort of morally neutral along with him. But rather, I receive his righteousness. So I'm far better off than I was before. I am positively loved by God. I am positively a child of the living God. And I cannot go back to the state of unforgiven. It's much better than just being forgiven. Sometimes I think we're lazy in our thinking things, righteousness, forgiveness, they're all the same thing. No, righteousness is much better because it's a positive gift. Does this work? Think in these terms. Shawshank Redemption, you must have seen it uh, at least once, if not 17 times. But um, the Morgan Freeman character read, of course, eventually, eventually after uh, a long, long time in prison, towards the end of the film, he's paroled. He's forgiven, in a sense. In a loose sense, I know. But he's free. And so when he's free, he can go and live life normally. He's back to as he was 
sort of before going into prison. But if you've seen the film, it's a bit miserable. I mean, it goes back to life as it was, but it's just, okay, well, here I am. I'm carrying food bags in a, in a supermarket, and I don't really know what I'm doing, and I've been so institutionalized, I'm struggling with this. Being free, it's better than being in prison, but it's not that great. Until, of course, he remembers and goes and collects the package left for him by Andy Dufresne. Um, and he goes and collects the whatever thousands of dollars and goes to Mexico and goes and now lives in luxury in this beautiful resort with his best mate. See, that's better than being free. That's a gift that he didn't have before, owning a yacht or working on a yacht uh, on a tropical beach. That's much better. Salvation is not merely forgiveness. It's better. It's being given the status as a child of God that you cannot lose. It's God's gift. It's a gift of righteousness. It's from first to last. You have to keep going back to the gospel. And as the Old Testament put it in the book of Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. You can read it in Habakkuk. It's a contrast to trusting your own wisdom. You trust the Lord's. Revealed. It was always the same way in the Old Testament, but like if you, if you gave a child, a young child, an old-fashioned watch, and it ticks, and they say it tells the time, and it's always accurate. I don't know how it works, and then one day you open it up and reveal the mechanism. They go, ah, okay. It always worked, but now you revealed how it works. Well, salvation was always by faith in the promises of God, but the New Testament just reveals how that happens through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, that's why I'm not ashamed. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. How? Well, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, this gift that he gives. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The Greeks may mock me. They may sneer they may laugh, but I know, I know that this can bring salvation to people. When you go back and read Acts 17, Paul preaches, and loads in the crowd, they mock him, and they sneer, and they say, who is this babbler? But some say, we'd like to hear you on this again. And at the end of the chapter, we're told others, become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ including, I mean, people we don't know about, but they clearly meant something at the time. Dionysius, Damaris, Damaris, and others. In one sense, that's what to expect. When you share the gospel, some will mock, some will sneer, and it is quite easy to be embarrassed. Some will say, okay, tell me a bit more. And others will become followers of Jesus, and they'll be saved from hell for heaven, forever. So don't be ashamed. You, if you're a Christian, you, you know what you hold in your hands, the power of God for salvation. You just got to push on through. Let me lead us in prayer.
Our great God and Father, you know. You know in our hearts where we stand on these things. Maybe we're not a Christian. We're a little bit embarrassed that we even turn up to church because uh, if some knew, they'd laugh at us. Many of us are Christians, and we know that Jesus is wonderful, and personally, we're absolutely persuaded. Uh, And yet at times, it feels so weak, and the mockery of the world is so strong, and we think it's easier to be quiet. Father, you know the areas, you know the places, you know the people with whom we're tempted to be ashamed. Persuade us ever more deeply that in this message is the power for salvation. The power, there is no other, and people need to hear it. Father, deepen that conviction we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.